Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Alexandra Sasha Killawall. She is a professor of sociology at Harvard University, an affiliate of the Harvard Center for Population and Development Studies, and the Institute of Quantitative Social Science, as well as the multidisciplinary program in inequality and social policy. She will be speaking about economic and wealth inequality. I'm joined by 11 of my classmates. I am Fred Easter, and I am calling in from Prior Lake, Minnesota, a fourth ring suburb south and west of downtown Minneapolis. It's going to be above freezing here today. Um, Not 90, but above 32. (laughs) Good. Thank you. Nick Bancroft, and uh, I'm about 15 miles southwest of Cambridge. If you're in Cambridge, are you? Yeah. Um, I'm at my house in Waltham, so close. Okay, well, even closer, Waltham. So about 15 miles southwest and um, went to Harvard with these guys in Harvard Business School. Uh, Out of Harvard Business School, went to India in the Peace Corps with my wife. And uh, uh, when we came back from the Peace Corps, uh, we settled in this place, Medfield, uh, raised four daughters. And I would say that I was the primary wage earner during that time. And she was the daughter raiser most of the time. And uh, she was very much involved in Medfield town politics, 20 years on the planning board. She uh, ran a, a several uh, multi-million dollar projects for the town, rebuilding the uh, town hall, portable housing units, all that kind of stuff. And uh, if she were here, she said, and I wasn't paid a damn cent. Jerry. Good morning. I'm in Pasadena, California, just outside of Los Angeles. And indeed, it is going to be 90 degrees today. Uh, after Harvard, I went to Columbia Law School and in the Peace Corps also in Cusco, Peru, up at 12,000 feet in the Andes. From there to the Department of Justice, there to an oil company for a long period of time. And then I worked for the uh, Audubon Society, heading up their California operations. And then as the vice chair of the State Water Resources Control Board, and then finally uh, heading up a nonprofit trade association of business, labor, and environmentalists. I basically am an environmental lawyer. And my wife is a former probation officer, which really helped with our two boys. So. <laughs> right, right. Doug Shapiro, Doug Shapiro. I uh, grew up in Houston, uh, currently living in Louisville, Kentucky with my wife and two dogs. This is my little West Highland Terrier who weighs about 17 pounds. And I have another dog that weighs close to 120 pounds. Um, I've had a very multifaceted career that ended up uh, in the last 15 years working in the pharmaceutical industry, designing and overseeing the conduct of clinical drug trials, mostly for drugs treating pain. Uh, And in the process, even though I was there for 15 years, I ended up discovering that I was actually 
not well suited at all for working <laughs> in a big corporation, uh, least of all the pharmaceutical industry. But that's that's a different story. Okay, thank you, Ham. Hi, uh, I'm originally from New York and Boston, and I'm living in Nashville for for many years, and. Uh, I'm I'm a member of the Harvard Octogenarian Denial Society. <laughs> uh, George George Jones. Hey, so George Jones. I'm currently living in Ann Arbor. Moved here from Atlanta about five months ago. Having lived in Ann Arbor before, my career was in as as an academic, first at Michigan, then at Emory University in Atlanta, and. I spent time both as a regular house and garden variety faculty member and in academic administration. All right, John Woodford. I've edited a university publication here for about 20 years. I was at the heart doctor today. There you see my sticker. And uh, <laughs> my heart, and so uh, with all my medications, it seems to be working. I'm still around. Hey, good. <laughs> good. Jeff. Hi, well, I'm still around too. And uh, I start, started out in Chicago, um, spent uh, several years uh, working in and about Latin America, uh, much of it as a sociologist, uh, writing quite a lot of, quite a number of things. Um, I'm now living in south, the southeasternmost corner of Spain in a little, little fishing village. Um, my spouse is an architect. She actually designed uh, the uh, complex of uh, seven houses, we, of which one, one of which is ours. Um, and let's see, I'm now mainly working on fiction. Um, just uh, recently published the second novel, and um, working on another one. So, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping my heart and everything else keeps going for a little while because I've got a whole list of projects ahead of me. <laughs> Okay, all right. Marcy. Um, <clears throat> I'm in New York City, still working to prevent um, the misuse, misuse of public resources, both natural resources and public funds, and um, suffering from the abuse of power. Okay, aren't huh. we all right, right? And now Sasha, Professor Sasha Kilowan. Thank Great. you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real treat to be here with all of you. As I mentioned earlier, I've listened to some of your episodes, so I know you're a, a lively bunch, and I look forward to our conversation. Um, I grew up, as I said, mostly in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and then I went to Michigan for both college and for graduate school, and then I've been at Harvard on the faculty in sociology since 2012. Uh, my understanding is we're going to talk about inequality kind of broadly today, and I study two uh, types of inequality. I thought I'd start uh, by talking about wealth inequality in particular. So as you may all already know, the there's a huge amount of wealth inequality in the United States in general, and the disparities are particularly large by race. So the typical white family has about 10 times as much wealth as the typical black family, and likewise about 10 times as much as the typical Latinx family. And those disparities have been pretty stable for the last quarter century. So I'm motivated in my research to try to understand both why these inequalities are so big and also why we've made so little progress in narrowing them. Part of my research looks at how wealth 
persists across generations. So unsurprisingly, uh, people tend to have wealth that is somewhat similar to their parents' wealth. Obviously not perfectly. Some people move up, some people move down. But on average, your wealth is higher when your parents had more wealth. And so that's one way that inequality persists across generations. You know, the, the past doesn't move too far away from us because we're still living with historical inequality as it gets perpetuated through generations. And then another part of the inequality we see today is inequality we recreate fresh in every generation. So even if you look at a black and a white adult who had parents with similar levels of wealth, the white adult is still more likely to have higher wealth today. And that's because of differences by race in income, as well as differences in home ownership and uh, the neighborhoods people live in and so forth. So that's that combination of repeating inequality across generations while also recreating it fresh in every generation. So my other line of research is about how family is related to uh, work life and to economic income, uh, economic outcomes in the United States. So when people get married or when they have children, what happens to their paid work hours, what happens to their unpaid work hours, what happens to their wages. And in the United States, broadly speaking, for men, having a child doesn't really change their paid work hours very much at all. So most men in the U.S. who can work full-time, who have the health to work full-time, who are able to find a job, work full-time. Whereas for women, having a child leads to, on average, a substantial change in their paid work hours. So they tend to decrease their paid work hours, increase their housework time, and as a result, experience substantial wage losses. So we call that the motherhood wage penalty. And this difference in how men and women's work lives are affected by the transition to parenthood is a major contributor to the gender pay gap that we see today. So my work looks in part at how couples outcomes are related to each other. Somewhat surprisingly, you might think if I had a good husband who does a ton of housework and when we have a baby, he really increases his housework more than the average man. You might think that that would allow me to have a smaller motherhood wage penalty, but it really doesn't. It really turns out that, again, for men, there's just not much variation in what men do and small changes on average, and they're not that closely linked with women's outcomes, not that closely linked with their female partner's outcomes. So women have a lot of variation in what they do after they have children. Some women keep working full-time, some move to part-time, some exit the labor force for a couple years, then come back, maybe they're out long-term, lots and lots of variation. But that variation is mostly not driven by whatever is going on with their husbands. And having a husband who does more housework than the average man doesn't mean that I do any less housework. So it really challenges the idea that if only we could get men to do more, then everything would be better for women in the workplace. I think we need some sort of more fundamental change to have men's contributions at home actually lead to relief for their female partners and to better economic outcomes for their female partners. I mean, what would that change be in your view? Yeah, so one, you know, one question I have when I see these numbers, so I'm a quantitative sociologist. So one of the limitations of my research is I'm seeing statistics, right? I'm not seeing what people do on the ground. But something I think about 
is how is it that men are contributing at home? And I think there's a temptation for us to see it as kind of a one-to-one trade-off. Like, well, if my husband washes that dish, I don't have to wash it. So that should just be a one-for-one trade-off. But I think it's not always so simple. So sometimes men get brought in to help with family projects, to be part of the family trip to the park, to be part of the discussions about how to redo the living room. But their female partner may just also be there. And so adding men could be good for the family. She might appreciate it, could be good for kids, but it doesn't necessarily mean that she's doing her paid work. So one one thing we see that this is uh, old research um, by other folks, that when women and when, when partners have different shifts of work, then he ends up contributing a lot more at home. So if she's not there to make the kids dinner because she works the night shift, well, then he's going to make the dinner, right? So that's just, I don't, I'm not suggesting that all families should work these off shifts. That's hard in a lot of other ways, but it suggests to me, at least that giving men more complete responsibility for things rather than just adding them to what's going on in the household could be helpful. I have a question. Uh, inequality, economic inequality has gotten worse right. in the United States in recent years. What are the driving forces behind it? And do you compare those forces with other well-to-do countries that don't have this um, extreme inequality or worsening inequality? It's a good question. Uh, So I'll speak to the type of inequality that I'm most familiar with, with, which is wealth inequality. And there where you are at the University of Michigan uh, in Ann Arbor, uh, Fabian Pfeffer is a uh, world-class wealth scholar. And he has some new work that looks at the US in comparative perspective along with other countries. And one thing that really stands out is a major determinant of how different countries are in their wealth inequality is how variable they are in home equity, in in housing values. And so this inequality we had in what we own, our place of residence, the U.S. just has real variation there in a way that some other countries have much less. Is there evidence that there is actually attempts in this society to close the wealth inequality gap. So I think I'm surprised you, it's not larger. I think if you look at some Go of ahead, the I'm sorry. policies, that's okay, that come out of the White House, um, I think there has been a particular emphasis on home ownership. And I think conceptually that makes some sense um, for, for typical Americans their home tends to be the biggest asset that they have. And so thinking about how uh, we can have more equitable access to home ownership, reduce discrimination in lending markets, reduce discrimination in appraisals, reduce discrimination in um, how, how prospective buyers are steered to different neighborhoods, all those things I think are relevant and important. Homeownership is also not the only source of the race gap in wealth. And so I think that is a good place to think about inequality in wealth, but it won't help people who aren't on that cusp of being able to buy a home. So I, to me, our wealth inequality policy should also think about the folks who are closer to zero in terms of their net worth and what might allow them to say, not take on high interest credit debt or you know, be able to have a, a savings account or something like that. 
I have owned two homes and my ex-wives left with them. <laughs> so from a gender inequality um, standpoint, um, women, the women I've known have, have done very well knowing me. <laughs> it, it is the case that in uh, the case of a dissolution of a relationship, women are more likely to be the ones who hold on to the home. Men, of course, tend to hold on to other assets from the marriage. Uh, obviously, I can't speak to your personal situation, but in, that's true kind of in the aggregate. However, among people who aren't married, men tend to have more wealth than women do. Well, what, what is the trend in terms of if this continues? I mean, uh, Mason wanted to ask, is, will there be a uh, sort of a revolt by the non-wealthy or where, where are we headed? I see these are the questions that you all I've heard you all talk to historians and you bring up these questions about speculation. I, you know, I don't know. I, uh, I'm not much of a predictor in these kinds of things. I think that the amount of inequality that we have in the US is certainly severe, but it has been quite persistent. So it is not uh, that is to say, there was always a lot of inequality in wealth uh, over the last, you know, 30, 40 years. And while it is growing, I don't necessarily see signs of a seismic shift of the kind that might precipitate um, a structural change. So this may be a naive question and it may not be answerable if it's not naive, but I'm gonna ask it anyhow. Sure. How much of the wealth inequality is actually due to things like discrimination, gender, race, whatever, and how much of it is due to the fact that most of the wealth of this country is owned is in the hands of a, of a very small number of people? That is a terrific question. It's not naive at all. Um, what I would say is it's, it's both and it depends on how you look at it, right? So it is always the case that if you look, uh, if you take all the wealth, all the positive wealth that exists in the country and then you know, add in debts and so forth, and you say, well, how much is owned just by that top 1%? Yeah. That's always a number between like 30 and 40% of total wealth. So it is enormous. And the results of that, how the very wealthy influence their local environments, influence you know, access to resources for other folks, influence politics, mm -hmm. that is certainly a major piece of the puzzle. At the same time, there's also a huge amount of inequality just among what I would consider ordinary people. So one thing we show, uh, this is again with Fabian Pfeffers in my work, we look at just you know where your parents were on the wealth distribution and where you are on the wealth distribution. And it's not just something that matters for the very rich. So it's not just the folks who had parents who could lend them a million dollars to start a real estate bill, uh, business or something like that. It's also, it's better to have parents who are in the middle than it is at those at the bottom. So having $60,000 of net worth for your parents compared to zero, that makes a difference too. So there it's both. I think that we can't lose sight of how much power is wielded by those who have extreme wealth, but we also can't lose sight of how much better it is uh, in terms of resources to have $200,000 compared to $2,000. And I think, I suspect many of us have read Jane Meyer's book, Dark Money. And yep. she makes it clear that the, 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 these folks' goal is to hold on to what they have and to make more. Yeah. It's called class struggle. 
that's their goal. And I think one way to see that on kind of a, a much smaller scale, but you know, why do we see this association between parents' wealth and kids' wealth? Well, of course, one of the ways parents want to use their resources is desperately to have good things for their children. They want their kids to have good education. They want their kids to be financially secure. They want them to be healthy. And that is in some ways very reasonable, but parents have really different resources to make that happen. So one thing that we find, for, for example, is that it's not necessarily, as I just mentioned, it's not that people necessarily pass on wealth directly to their children. It's not necessarily writing a check to your kids or having them get a bequest. A lot of it is through these more indirect pathways. So wealthy parents are more likely to have kids who graduate from college. Now, some of that could be because they wrote a check to college, but it could also be because they had a house in a good school district where they were able to uh, have you know neighbors who had high cultural capital and social capital and low exposure to environmental hazards and all these other indirect things that can be purchased through parents' resources. And of course, we have no wealth tax in the United States. And after reading Thomas Piketty, I think we all can have seen how the uh, capital grows much faster than anybody's wages. So that uh, uh, and it's protected and untaxed mostly. Uh, and we have, you know, the, the, the multi-billionaires paying little or no tax um, as compared to people who work for them. What I kind of come back to when I'm thinking about the race gap in wealth in particular, it's certainly the case that white families are overrepresented among the very wealthy. But again, even that typical white household, that typical white household has $100,000 in net worth. So they are not what we might think of as very wealthy on this scale, that typical white family often has some home equity, a little bit of savings in the bank, maybe a little bit in the retirement account, $100,000. And then compare that to $10,000 for the typical black or typical Hispanic household, which might be a car and a few hundred dollars in the bank. That disparity in my mind also matters a lot. Wealth inequality in the, our country is really bound up with every other social institution. So our criminal justice institution, the, our pattern of mass incarceration is part of what constructs the wealth inequality as well. And I think you could think about this for schools, for the labor market, for the tax system, all those things are kind of working together to generate the inequality that we see. Um, thinking about a number of things. One, a little different is uh, <clears throat> recently reading about demographics, um, the concept of a, a rectangle versus a pyramid and our situation as we are ready to bow out one by one by one from the top of the pyramid. Instead of that, uh, we're apparently going to be increasingly living in a rectangle. And I'm wondering how who's going to do the work and uh, who's going to pay for the top of the rectangle? And does that have any influence on passing along wealth or creating wealth for that matter? Have you looked into that sort of thing? It's not my area of research, but the thing you're pointing to, this idea of population pyramids is a classic idea in, in demography. So I am a student of yes. demography. I'm happy to talk about it. So the idea 
that Nick's referencing is this idea that you can describe a society as essentially a series of stacked bars where the width of the bar is how many people are in that age group. And so it is typically true for a society that you have a pyramid shape where there are more young people than there are older people. And that can be true uh, both because obviously you have gradual mortality with age, but also potentially true if a society is growing over time. So uh, if you have fertility rates that are above two, you just tend to have more people in the latest birth cohorts than you used to. And there's been this idea of transformation to a rectangle, both as birth rates dip and also as people have more years of healthy life. So rather than having um, as much mortality in, say, the 50s and 60s, we might see more people really push uh, their their life length up. So this is certain. Go ahead. No, no, like us. We're indeed. <laughs> so, um, so this has certainly been a concern that has existed in countries with lower fertility rates and lower immigration rates than the U.S. So, East Asian countries, Japan, Korea have uh, have been some of the kind of leading countries contending with this these issues. Also, some countries in Southern Europe, Italy, Spain. So my colleague, Mary Brinton, who's in my department, she really studies these low fertility patterns. The US has sort of managed to keep a fertility rate pretty close to two, which is just the replacement rate. And that's in part by women just having more kids and, um, and then supplementing that in part with uh, immigration. So because migrants tend to be younger than people who are not migrants, that also helps kind of fill in those, those younger parts of the pyramid. So that's sorry, that was background, but to get to your actual question, what does this mean? Well, the, the issue that you point to is exactly what people are concerned about, I think, which is what tends to happen as you move to this rectangular population structure is there are more older people. And so you hear this phrase in the US context a lot with concerns about um, the, the solvency of social security, right? So if we have more people drawing out and fewer people paying in, how will we pay for everything? Who will be the caregivers for the elderly? Uh, how will you know, the country's economy function? So that's certainly um, been a, a concern. So I think you know, one question that you might have for policy is how can we prevent this rectangular pyramid from existing. And then you also might wonder, even if it does exist, how can we support people? So these countries that have particularly low fertility have often tried to change policies in ways that make it easier to be a parent. So some of the issues we were talking about already, how hard it can be, particularly for women to combine being a parent with paid work, if you can make that a little bit easier, then maybe people feel okay having a second child. Or maybe if it's not so expensive to pay for a kid to go to college, maybe you feel like I could support two children or three children instead of maybe just the one that I was going to have. So most of the change in fertility in the US has not been in the last you know, few decades, has not been more people being childless. It's been scaling down of big families basically. So I think there's some possible policy interventions there. They don't always work great because having a kid is obviously a, like a big decision. There's a lot of components. So tweaking just one little thing on the margin might not really change things. I think these are going to have to be bigger interventions. Now, Sasha, there seems to be an underlying current 
that it is not appropriate to pass on wealth to the next generation. Uh, and you know, I look at myself, uh, I grew up poor in public housing. I inherited zero, uh, but I've been able to accumulate some wealth. Uh, I'm not Beyonce, that's for damn sure, but I've, I've got a little bit. Uh, and should I feel guilty about passing this on to my children? Uh, I would think that most parents with children want to be able to alleviate some of the stress that they will have in their lives and give them some of the wealth. Uh, certainly, I'm not trying to be egregious, uh, certainly people that are billionaires, uh, I certainly agree that we should have a system that taxes some of that. But for just middle-class people, upper-middle-class people, should we be penalizing them in some way? It's a great question. I'll say a few different things. So again, with my colleague, Fabian Pfeffer, we've looked at, you know, what is this role of direct transfers of the kind you're talking about in generating the persistence of wealth across generations, not for the very wealthy, but for people in the bottom 99%. And as I said, it's not big. And one of the reasons for that is, is offspring typically don't receive those gifts until they are, you know, in 50-ish at least. And by that time, they've already accumulated a lot of the wealth that they're going to accumulate. So Fabian likes to say that if you have wealthier parents, that extra bequest is just the cherry on top of your already advantaged outcomes. So by the time you leave a bequest to your children, you've probably already had a home for them to grow up in, to send them to schools, maybe to pay for their college, maybe to help them out a little bit when they were in their 20s and didn't quite have enough money for rent or whatever, you know, pay their cell phone bill, stay on the family plan, all these other ways. And so I do think it's important for us to keep that in mind that in some ways that last bit it is only one, not the biggest piece of this much broader way that intergenerational reproduction happens. So to some extent, I think you should feel only as guilty about that as you might have about writing a check for college. The other thing I'll say is, again, parents deeply want to help their children, as you say. And so I'm generally skeptical about um, requests for change that ask us to ask parents to reject that idea, ask parents to step away from that idea. I think it's gonna be pretty hard for us to not have parents who want more than anything else to protect and care for their children. So I think we could absolutely think about policies that might make things more equitable. That could be a tax on inheritances, but it could also just be a more gradated income tax throughout the lifetime. So to me, like those policies are a way for us to not have to tell parents to feel guilty or not guilty, it's just a matter of, of paying in to a common system. Thank you. I, I do worry that my kids keep looking at actuarial tables and wondering when I'm going to die, but uh, that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> well, I think this is actually a, a great point uh, that one of the major, th like, what is wealth for? right? So one major thing wealth is for in the U.S. in particular is financial security and old age. And it's a pretty hard risk game, right? You are trying to decide how much money you're going to need based on how long you might live. And you could pretty easily get that calculation wrong in either direction. So another thing that we might think about as a policy change that could have a variety of impacts would be what, what would it be like to have 
uh, more of a public provision of financial support for those who are past their working years. How about a, a comment, Sasha, for um, a straight up question about correlation between um, education and wealth generation over a lifetime? And can you uh, go from that to um, the better sharing of the uh, job of living between men and women? Okay. So I think, yeah, that's, there's many pieces there. So for sure, it's the case that people who have more education tend to have more wealth. And that is particularly because education is so strongly associated with income. So if I could pick only one predictor to use to try to guess your wealth, I would ask you for like your income at age 45 or something like that. And education is a big predictor of that. That's certainly a, a way that income really matters for wealth inequality. However, it's not enough. So women became the majority of new college grads back in 1980, right? Women have enormously increased their education relative to men. And that has contributed to women narrowing the gender wage gap but it hasn't gotten us all the way there. Women still make about 85 cents on the dollar when you compare um, two people who are working, both working full time. As yeah. I, you know, some of that's because men and women work in different jobs, even when they have the same education. So you could imagine two people with a master's degree, maybe he's an engineer, maybe she's a social worker. Those folks don't on average make the same amount of money. We can debate whether they should make the same amount of money, but they tend not to. And then you add this motherhood penalty where women continue to be the folks who are much more likely to take time off from work. So education can help, but women are already out educating themselves compared to men. You know, they become the majority of new, of new JDs, new MDs. We're kind of already there. And likewise, when we talk about the race gap in wealth, uh, you know, if we narrowed the education gap by race, we could contribute to narrowing the wealth gap, but there are so many things that would still be there. To what extent, if at all, are um, sociologists measuring not income and wealth in terms of dollars, money, um, or money equivalents, but in having the things you really need for survival. And some of the things in New York City that huge numbers of people are not getting is not just a home, but, but a place to live that has adequate heat and hot water. And then there's a bunch of other resources that are essential for survival that nobody can get, no matter how much money they have, um, healthy air that doesn't, you know, limit your lifespan, um, healthy water that isn't going to shorten your lifespan, um, and um, food in some cases. Yeah, medical yeah, care. Thanks. Thanks for that question. I So there are certainly folks who study what's sometimes called material hardship. And those measures often come from kind of a battery of questions. It's not my area of expertise, so I'm not going to get them all exactly right. But they ask things like, in the last month, did you, you know, did you experience food insecurity? Did you, you know, were you hungry and didn't have money to buy food? Did you have you know, a problem with your heat, water, those kinds of things? So there are these kind of index measures. I think it, 
Um, I think it's probably the case that those measures, again, I'm at risk of misspeaking because it's not my area, but I think it is likely that they more often um, include those household type things rather than asking people, you know, were you exposed to unhealthy air? That's something people might not really know how to answer. And so folks who study that sort of thing, there's a line of research in sociology and, and other social sciences on lead exposure, for example, often tends to be kind of a, a different um, subfield. It's certainly studied, but I would say it's probably not baked in to those hardship measures in the same way. Doug. The cost of undergraduate education has increased to an enormous extent in the last quarter of century or more. And I'm wondering if you think that that is having or will have any kind of impact, I would have thought it'd be negative if there is one, on wealth distribution, especially between the races. Yeah, thanks for that question. It is the case that um, there's been some work by I think, I think Sudanarski and Martha Bailey, but I may have those names slightly wrong, um, on the growing gap by family income in children's educational attainment. So how much money your parents has, has become increasingly important for determining whether you get a college degree or not. So I think that could happen for any number of reasons, but we certainly might think that the rising cost of uh, higher education could contribute to that. And I think it's also important to remember that undergraduate applicants aren't operating with full information. So sometimes the response to this concern is something like, oh, there's a lot of financial aid available. But navigating that financial aid landscape is, of course, challenging. Um, what resources you grew up with may shape what schools you apply to, what schools you know about, what feels attainable to you. And so I think that, uh, yeah, I think the cost of higher education absolutely matters. And I think we can't necessarily address that problem just by increasing financial aid at the institution level. We should try to have absolutely free higher education to the whole population, which is what they're trying to do in Chile, for example. Uh, and um, I, I think several countries actually do have many, much more opportunity for higher education for people, regardless of their income. And of course, we've been exceptionally privileged with uh, an, an exceptional education, which is probably why we're all rich. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, thank you. We've been talking for about an hour now or so. And uh, Sasha, are you optimistic or pessimistic or give us your final thoughts? Mm -hmm. There's moments when I have some optimism. I think I'll start with my pessimism. For me, <laughs> the pessimism comes from the fact that these patterns of wealth inequality are so baked into everything. And so when people ask me, like, what causes the racial wealth gap? Is it about a legacy of inequality? Yes. Is it about contemporary inequality? Yes. Is it about housing? Yes. Is it about education? Yes. It's, it's everywhere, right? Is it about the levels of resources people have? Yes. Is it about how much it helps them wealth-wise to have those resources? So unequal benefits from homeownership? Yes. And so that can feel overwhelming. Um, it can feel like it's so pervasive that it'll be really hard to make change. The way I try to see it with a little bit of optimism is the fact that 
the inequality does come from so many places means wherever we are most passionate about intervening can be the right place to intervene. So if your passion is about reducing residential segregation, work there. If your passion is about access to higher education, work there. You know, it, whatever your interest, if your passion is reparations, work there. And so I think it does give us the opportunity to think about, you know, whatever our own particular interests are and recognize that because there are so many contributors to wealth inequality, even topics that aren't directly about wealth inequality by intervening could still make a difference. All right. Well, listen, thank you so much. Thank you all so much. It's a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed getting a chance to meet you all. You're an impressive bunch. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Harvard professor Sasha Killawald. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcasts.